Hello, this is the We Be Imagining podcast. This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. It is Thursday, June 25th, 2020. I'm here with my co-host, Stanley Elan, and today we have uh, Dr. Brian Jefferson on the show from the University of Illinois. Um, and before we get started and I ask everybody how they doing, I just wanted to share that we are going to switch up our intro a little bit. In part, we were just as a team reflecting on how we can be more inclusive about integrating gender and sexuality into our analysis and um, not waiting for people to tell us their pronouns um, and also sharing a little bit about ourselves. Um, so my name is Khadija, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the director of We Be Imagining. Um, my research focus is predictive analytics in the child welfare system. And um, I also teach a, a course on oral history methodology at Cornell Tech. Ilan, um, what's up? You wanna say a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, my name's Ilan Mandel. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm a researcher at the Future Autonomy Research uh, Lab. My advisor is uh, Wendy Ju. And I kind of build nonsense machines and have a lot of fun doing it. All right, cool. I, I'm not sure what to make of nonsense machines, but Stanley, go ahead. <laughs> um, hey, everyone. My name is Stanley Munoz. I'm uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a professional dancer and choreographer and also a creative in many ways based out in Los Angeles, um, originally from New York. Dope, dope. Brian, would you like to say a little bit about yourself and what pronouns you use? Yep. Uh, my name is Brian Jefferson. Uh, pronouns he, him, his. Uh, I'm an associate professor of uh, geography and geographic information science, uh, and I focus on um, computing technology, uh, capitalism, and, and the state. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Um, we've, we featured the last several episodes, maybe not intentionally, but have really focused on um, predictive policing and policing infrastructures. But it's exciting to have a geographer on, especially in the wake of interviewing Catherine Mitch Kittrick and thinking about demonic grounds and critical black geographies. And um, we just really loved your book. So thank you for making the time to come on the show. Thank you. And I appreciated that you drew on Catherine Beckett and Naomi Murakawa, whose book, The First Civil Right, I Love, Coming for Liberals, mm -hmm. Building Prison America. Um, and you were citing their observation that carceral power must be capacious, complex, and adaptive as the policies and institutions involved in it. And that, you know, I'm both so excited. I hear you saying not being, not romanticizing it, but for me, looking through uh, with a child welfare focus, um, uh, yeah, was it Friday? Yeah, Friday there was a, pro a Black Families Matter protest in downtown Brooklyn. And that's the first time that I've seen um, like publicly this display of demanding justice um, for state sanction murder by the police, like coupled with this acknowledgement of how child welfare is like systematically decimating um, the black community and families. And in some neighborhoods, you know, there's even a higher rate of child abuse investigations than there is, um, you know, criminal arrest. So, I mean, there's definitely a romantic part for me that I definitely feel that and see that. But I'm just wondering, you know, being out in the protests and being in New York City, it seems so decentralized, I guess, the leadership, which can be an asset. But at the same time, I'm wondering, you know, how the movement can deepen itself to be prepared to adapt and make, you know, so quickly the call for abolition became a call to defund. And so... 
I think what was really powerful in your book is how you explicate the infrastructure of policing beyond just the centralized kind of notion of the prison or the point of contact where it might be an arrest, but also the logistics. You know, how are people getting shuttled from place to place? And so I'm just wondering, um, I guess, how strategies of abolition can take that into account. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I, for me personally, you know, I, I did American politics in school, so I do sort of have this romantic relation to the 60s and thinking about forms of organized of organization in the 60s um, and, you know, from from liberals from and from NAACP to Nation of Islam. Um, and that was a particular model where, you know, organizations looked a little more structured probably than they do now. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm with you, I'm looking at the decentralized sort of resistance and, you know, I, I, uh, the, the conclusion I was, I got to is it seemed like the most effective acts of resistance were sort of this almost this very internet age, viral, um, decentralized, spontaneous, uh, uh um, sort of movement. Like even this round of, of protests, uh, you know, around the murder of George Floyd, like no one saw this, it, it was spontaneous, uh, and it, and it spread virally, I think. Um, and, you know, just looking around the world, or, or at least in this country, it seems that the decentralized sort of approach and strategy, um, that might just be the way that the world is. And that might just be the most, I think, efficacious way to confront power. Uh, and, and, you know, not to get you know too postmodern professorial, but, you know, this is like a very sort of postmodern, um, um, horizontal, spontaneous um unpredictable way of fighting power. And, you know, I think we should just look at what's happening and, and seeing maybe this is a better strategy um, than than um, trying to have centralized institutions uh, for our political objectives and, and values. Um, because centralized institutions get co-opted, you know, very easily. You see that with the civil rights movement uh, in some regards. So, you know, I... To me, the, I'm just trying to wrap my head around the decentralized sort of network um, uh, approaches to resistance, but it's something that I really want to immerse myself in because I'm just thinking maybe it's just a different world and, and this, is, this is just the most um, powerful uh, and effective way to resist. And, and I do believe resistance is not, you know, I think it's a permanent, it's a way of life in many ways, I think. So, you know, I think it's more about changing the culture, you know, of how people look at um child welfare and say, oh, wait, this is part of, this is, this is an institution that reproduces racial, um, you know, inequalities. I mean, I never thought of it that way. You know, I just thought it was for kids, right? Um, or maybe looking at uh, the way that IBM, um, you know, has a contract with the NYPD and saying, oh, wait a second. Now I see like IT corporations, they're making mad money off of this. So this, so now that I see the IT corporation is, is sort of implicit in racial inequality. And, you know, I just think it, just getting a new set of eyes, um, um, it, it can be more powerful than creating an, an institution, uh, in, in my opinion. And changing discourse, I think, uh, can be more powerful because that will determine what that type of demands people make and it can determine what people will or will not put up with. So, you know, I'm just... I just have, yeah. 
Now, I just wanted to ask you one quick question. So, I mean, you cite all these people that I love, but I saw that you came for for Deleuze and you were saying that you're problematizing the societies of control. Uh, and I have to say, I, I, I do love him. And I was just curious, you know, to me, when I think of like control societies, there's so much of this, like thinking about the flows of capital, the flows of social interactions um, and this kind of diffusion of human interactions in the midst of this airport society. So I'm just curious on what's your critique of that and how does that impact what you're looking at in terms of policing infrastructure? Oh, yeah. I tried to tippy-toe around that one, but I think I didn't do it. Well, um, yeah. It, it, so my critique of Deleuze, I think, is taken straight out of Joy James's critique of Foucault. Um, and she wrote this, uh, this just, it's like a nuclear bomb. Well, it was for me, um, essay called Erasing the Spectacle. Um, and what she looked at is, you know, in, di- in discipline and punish how, how Foucault talks about the disciplinary society is different um, than sovereignty. Sovereignty was violent and people were being tortured and dragged through the streets. But now it's through these sort of micro mechanics that are at work in the educational system, in the military barracks, in the hospital, et cetera. Um, now, obviously, this has made um, tr- the, the, the contribution that Foucault and French post-structuralism has made, I, mean, I would never minimize that because in many ways it's, it's, it's very um, strongly influenced the way I see power. Um, but Joy James says, uh, if you go to San Quentin, the, the power doesn't look all that sort of micro, um, you know, mechanical and all that discursive, right? It, it looks much more barbaric and archaic. And I, so I really wanted to take Joy James's critique of Foucault, which, you know, I'd been reading Foucault for over a decade and loved him um, and still do. But that critique, it, it just changed my entire perspective. So I also love Deleuze um, and, and Guattari. Um, but in looking at society and control, I think it's been so influential for a lot of media studies and a lot of work in algorithmic governance. And I'm worried that if we say... Um, the old census categories are no longer operative. Now we, we don't have individuals, we have individuals that just looks at your credit score and maybe your school grades and if you have a criminal record. I, I, I think that's a mistake. And I think that the old census categories, racial, um, uh, national, gendered, etc., they still weigh heavy upon people and they still divide us and put us into hierarchies. So, I was, so I'm really trying to argue once again, a, against this sort of idea of the individuation of the subject. Uh, and, and the sort of subtext of my critique is, well, maybe for a middle-class um, professor, uh, you know, in Paris or in New York, or even myself, maybe that sort of individuation is important in the way that I'm situated in relation to the economy or political power. But let's not universalize our own experience with digital technology. I mean, there are other people who... Um, you know, the technology is used an ankle bracelet. If you go across the wrong street where you're restricted, then you'll have a patrol car with a, a police officer who's a, who's a quasi-military uh, personnel, right, staring down at you, right? And that might not be applicable for the middle-class person, um, that experience. But that experience is very normalized, I think, for a lot of poor Black and Latinx people, specifically in, in cities. So, you know, I see when I look at... Um, you know, especially let's say Deleuze uh, and control society. Yes, things have gotten more decentralized. Power has gotten more nebulous and more cloud-like. But decentralization and centralization can move 
together. So, you know, I think you, you have more centralized control over some of these neighborhoods, which are starting to look more like prisons because of the diffuse technology. So I think it's a little more important to think dialectically about how things can get more decentralized, but also more centralized at the same time. So that was sort of the crux to that, of that uh, uh, critique. All right, cool, cool, cool. Fair. I was curious about what your your take was on that. And I mean, part of the context in which I was thinking about it is that to me, I feel like it's been interesting, you know, being within the data policy community that everybody was talking about algorithmic bias and injustice has been relatively silent um, outside of sending out solidarity messages and taking off for Juneteenth um, for their network. And, you know, the one exception was around the contact tracing apps and this idea of DPT3. Um, and there was this argument that, you know, maybe the danger is if you have a centralized database where you're, you know, whether you're using like uh, Dragnet software to collect people's like Bluetooth locations um, to determine exposure to somebody with COVID-19 um, or the other models that came out with Apple and, and Google. But the, the the idea was that it would be more progressive that you had like a decentralized model of um, sending the data out and not having it focused in one database um, with either the private or the public sector. And I'm just wondering, I guess I'm just kind of thinking through this tension between decentralization and centralization, even as just, just as, as a strategy um, to address what's going on with policing right now. But maybe yeah. Elon or Stanley, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, that that sort of tension is, and Alexander Galloway writes about it in Protocol, but I think like that tension is constitutive of, of, of the digital, of because the digital, the or let's say of the internet. Because the internet, if you look at its very, you know, sort of architecture, it is it's dispersed, but it's also um, central centralized at the same time. You're able to have a network that spans the globe, you know, that goes through network access points, right? Or individual computers, which would be central sort of hubs of, of various sizes. So, I mean, decentralization and centralization, they go hand in hand. And I think there's a tendency because the decentralization is so new and it's so, you know, it, it makes it so heavy scratching that um, uh, we look at that a lot as a society mm -hmm. and especially as thinkers um, but that also moves hand in hand with well now the state has more uh, sort of um, you know well Foucault talks about it too right in, in his pastoral power uh, so I think that you know they I try to look at them moving both in tandem um, rather than saying things are getting just more decentralized. I think it also can be like, the, you know, in China, I'm reading a little more about um, Uyghurs and the way that they're, you know, this is, you know, if you read about them and then you look at sort of what happens in the U.S., my great fear is we're closer to them than we realize and are headed in that direction. But you could totally see how they could turn an entire community into a carceralized, uh, even perhaps more intensely than our country uh, through decentralized technology. Um, so I'm interested in, 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 you know, looking at the things, uh, dialectically uh, rather than just decentralization. I think maybe a good example of that in your book is where you talk about the NYPD's own fiber optic cables that they laid, which I have to say I was wholly unaware of, but the idea that, yeah, you're creating a, an incredibly decentralized system of surveillance, but it's one that is fundamentally centralized to a separate communication infrastructure from what the rest of us use, even in a city where a ton of people still don't have access to internet. Mm. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, that to me, it was funny because I started the book and, you know, I did theory in, in grad school, but it was just learning these little facts 
that really were eye-opening. And to think about, so it's decentralized in that these are wires that are, you know, running underneath your feet, but then they sort of reassemble in, in public housing complexes. So, you know, you, you have, again, I just think it, it, and that enables the NYPD to prisonize public housing complexes to an extent that they were previously able to do. So, you know, we have to see, I think, both tendencies um, um, growing when we look at the way that these technologies are deployed. And I was also wondering if you could speak to kind of the implications of what you're saying around smart cities, just thinking about... I mean, one, there's like looking at, what is it called, sidewalk labs in Toronto and how the resistance was ultimately effective to drive them out. But also, given that so many people are able to work remotely, and particularly in a city like New York, where the sensibility of paying so much for rent in a city where you can't go anywhere makes no sense, that there's all this, not just white flight, but I mean, anybody who really has the means has been fleeing. When we walk the streets, you just see so much um, like chairs and bags that show people are like fleeing. Um, even Elon and I went to a protest and, um, we walked from Chelsea to maybe Rockefeller center and we just passed like people actively moving in the middle of people protesting and police swarming. It was just, it felt like, uh, the opening scene of the Watchmen or something real quick. Um, and so I'm just wondering, like thinking about smart city, so much of that infrastructure is fixed. So what does it mean if now all these people are fleeing to suburban and rural areas? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, what I was trying to do with talking about the smart city um, was that, you know, there's so much great work on algorithmic governance. And now I think the activist community has really done a better job exposing the links between those forms of governance and big tech companies and journalists, I think have journalists and activists, I think have been doing a a better job than a lot of academics, um, including, you know, I'm saying myself too, in teasing out the links between the two. So when I say the smart city, what I'm looking at, it, it doesn't have to do with the technology in the first instance. The first instance, it means IT corporations who are the equivalent to what industrial manufacturing corporations were in the late 1800s. So when I say the smart city, I mean, well, let's look at how telecommunications, let's see how Siemens, let's see how Motorola, let's see how IBM or Oracle are actively influencing urban policy. And to me, that's the dangerous part. Um, because you know, I come from the uh, tradition, or I'm, stu- I'm you know, read in the tradition of black radical theory, and you know, if you th- if we think about like Du Bois, you know, he shows how the way that the agrarian capitalists, you know, had the stake, of course, in in slavery, uh, but then he also goes and you know, people later look at uh, like Ruthie Gilmore, Angela Davis will look at sort of all the corporations that are involved in the prison industrial complex, you know, and they go from, you know, toilet paper to, um, you know, to, to feeding um, the incarcerated people. So I sort of wanted to take a page out of their book and say, oh, well, how is IT capital? How, how is Silicon Valley? What is their sort of position with regards to the spread of algorithmic governance in general, but in specific racialized criminalization? And for me, the smart city is these corporations who want to sell cameras. They want to sell predictive crime algorithms they you know they want to sell fiber optic cables so and they're never they want to sell body cameras and they'll never be lacking for a reason to sell another one 
to urban police. Uh, so for me, the smart city is, is sort of more how these IT companies are influencing the policy and also the physical infrastructure of the city. Um, so, you know, when people start moving out, um, well, if you, I think you said earlier, if they're more well-to-do, then you're still going to have poor people, you know, and they usually bear the brunt of these tech, these surveillance technologies. Um, you know, they'll they'll find different reasons to sell surveillance technologies to cities under maybe some other auspice. You know, maybe people have had it with the sort of policing technologies, but they'll find another niche, I would imagine, um, to to offload their product because that's 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 what I see the smart city. Um, the technology itself is almost a secondary thought for me. Well, I mean, part of one of my, like, I don't know, conspiracy theories slash hypothesis is that how much of the surveillance will be articulated in the language of care. Um, you know, thinking about the origin of policing in this country, I'm also thinking about institutions like the almshouse, the poor, the workhouse, um, where people had to give up their right to vote um, and even in order to live there. Um, and just... I guess one of the things I was thinking about Chicago. And so one of the things that's really interesting to me about the strategic subject list that they used, um, besides the fact that the parameters of the the algorithm that they were using were bounded to the community where so-called gun violence was happening and didn't include like those who were manufacturing the guns. Um, Mm -hmm. But when somebody was identified um, as hot, as uh, potentially a victim or a perpetrator of gun violence, they would send a uniformed officer and a social worker. And it was this idea that, you know, we acknowledge racial disproportionality in policing. And so we care about you and we identify you as somebody who is at risk. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, these people who are left, including including us right at this moment in, in cities like New York, um, how much of it, given the amount of joblessness and unemployment and hunger that the city is left with, how much of the surveillance is going to happen in the language of care and charity? Um, I don't know if you saw, but there was like four, there was an article last week about $1.5 billion uh, was given out to various nonprofits through Ford Foundation, three other major foundations, I think, including Carnegie Mellon. And the vast majority of it went to white run organizations that were talking about Black Lives Matter. Um, so it's just thinking about, you know, there's a connection between the information capital, the state, but then there's also this like social service realm that like also legitimizes it. Um, so I'm just like curious, I mean, also just with my interest in, in child welfare, I'm just curious about how you're incorporating that and thinking, um, about that in your work. Well, I haven't really, I actually would want to talk to you more about it, um, because that's not an area of my expertise, but I think you're spot on in in that the language you know that I'm looking at is the language of public security um, and public safety, uh, and that would seem easily translatable into different welfare agencies, uh, especially child welfare. And we know the thing about digital technology is it records information, it records data. It's an information processing machine, um, and the more information that you produce about a certain population or a certain individual, as we can see, it could be used for a million different things. Like I have no doubt that the technology has saved lives, you know, in the context of the COVID crisis in some instances, but we also know that it's it's expanded surveillance and, and made people's, uh, you know, whittled people's privacy down even more. Um, so, you know, I don't know as much about the welfare system. 
um, and how the technology is being deployed out. But I think what you're what you're getting at is is definitely something that uh, people should be focusing on because you know the way first you said two things the way the money is moving right uh, and we see you know when you go on Amazon and you see Black Lives Matter I'm scratching my head like I've never. The world just gets weirder and weirder and weirder like every day. Like, I don't know what, what universe we're in sometimes. But so you see that. But then you also see, um, you know, the contact tracing apps and these things. And then you have to wonder who's buying these data. Are the government using these data? Um, are the data secure, et cetera? Um, so I think, but I think with this moment, people are becoming, um, are starting to question all these things, just like you're doing, just like I'm doing. And that seems to be like, it seems like a moment, you know, where everyone's starting to look around and question the society we live in. Uh, and, you know, I think in the sort of tradition of, you know, abolitionism, you know, that's what I love about the the way that they um, talk about, it's not just the prison, right? It's also um, the healthcare system. It could also be the child welfare system. These things are linked together and the technology are enables them to work together in a very efficient way, but people are starting to question this stuff. So I, I think that's like, um, you know, I don't have the answer, but I definitely have noticed that people are starting to question more. And I think that's something that we should try to build on. Yeah. Um, I actually, um, to push that question a bit further and take it in a bit of a different direction, since you do focus on public security, right. And policing, um, and some of my old research and interests were in are in public health. And uh, I immediately think about how many public health problems are now becoming police problems, right? You have mental health, you have drug abuse. These are specific issues that end up in the realm of public security. Um, And so I'm thinking of some of the, Khadija mentioned like the finances and where the money is going, but I'm also thinking of the language that's being used um, and some of the methodologies. Um, Thinking back to uh, around the beginning of your book, you mentioned you say that your analysis is a bit different from uh, biomedical interpretations. Um, I'm thinking specifically regarding the census and early data collection methods where they conglomerated all of these white ethnicities into just white and black in order to create that sense of difference um, between the two. And so um, I don't know if this is really a question or how, how to perfectly phrase this question, but I'm wondering how you integrate biomedical or public health understandings um, into your public security work? Well, I don't really, to be honest. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't strong links. Um, but, no, well, I do in the sense of looking at the disproportionate amount of people in prison who have mental health issues or have drug addi- uh, addiction. Um, that work, I think, is well-established. Um um, by people like uh, Naomi Marikawa and, and you know Kathy Beck, they've done great stuff uh, in that field, and and sort of looking at Bruce Western has done great work in that in that field, um, and saying just exactly what you said, right? Uh, the idea that these problems, these health problems, are turned into criminal justice issues, um, uh, but. It would be interesting to see the way more that the public health uh, apparatus becomes digitized, uh, and how that plays out, especially for disadvantaged poor people. Um, and, you know, one of the reoccurring themes in the book, but just, you know, through history is when these technologies are rolled out. And what I'm trying to emphasize is that everybody doesn't experience um, the technology the same way. So for 
poor people, you know, it could the very same piece of technology can be like a cage for a wealthy person. It could be it could be life saving, right? So. I think the important thing is uh, to look at the way the technology is rolling out, but not only to look at the functionality of the technology, which is something I think that a, a lot of people spend um, the brunt of the time doing, but looking at sort of the, the policy um, by which the technology is being deployed. So is it being deployed right to help police catch uh, disproportionately mentally ill or homeless people? more, right? Or is it used to find them homes, right? Uh, what is the policy that's driving the deployment of the technology? So, you know, public health is not is not uh, my field um, specifically, but if I were doing a study uh, in, in that field, I would be just, I would start with the policy. Um, and this is what I love about Virginia Eubanks's um, book, uh, you know, but the digital poor, automating um, poverty, right? She starts with the policy and then she follows how these database systems and surveillance systems and algorithms are being implemented. But I think it's always important to start with that political um, side of things rather than the technical. And then seeing the ways that they're deployed differently, right? Because I'm sure public health, you know, surveillance is going, there will be different consequences for poor folks than there will be for well-off. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up Eubanks's automating inequality because that that subtitle, "How Digital Tools Police Profile Punish the Poor," um, really resonates with your your whole title. Although notably, she looks at the adoption of um, automated decision making systems in three human service sectors, but notably not uh, policing. So that's interesting. Um, and I hear you. I mean, I think we have a laundry list of things that we would like you to research from public health to child welfare. Um, but I hear you that that's not where your expertise is. And though I have to say, I really appreciated the way that you accounted for the role of eugenics in kind of the narrative of implementing and legitimizing these technologies. Um, and just this is a little bit of a side note, but I was just thinking about you talk about Fred Hoffman and that just reminded me of Adolf Cudele. Have you heard the story about body mass index? No, no. So originally, the body mass index was called the Cudele index. So Adolf Cudele, I mean, he was really looking at um, criminal biology, but then he started getting influenced by these like geographic ideas, and that maybe we shouldn't associate it with the individual person, but we should start it associating with the um, like different attributes of of the neighborhood. Um, but he had this idea of the normal person, which at that time was like cisgendered, white, able-bodied male, and so body mass index really comes from this idea of um, who is deviating from the normal. And there's so much of those kind of imaginaries built into these technologies and embedded in these, uh, um, in the embedded as ideology in the way that these technologies are enacted and the policies to, to justify them. Like even thinking about, um, you know, the language we use to talk about people with substance use disorders, you know, that they could be clean. Um, and how do we even clean up a city, even a smart city? It's interesting, like smart really means surveillance but um it also reminds me of like gifted and talented and like what are we what are we really talking about we're talking about the way like society is stratified and like being reorganized um all of that to say just that um you know i think we can't all be specialists in everything but i did see the way in your work it comes out around eugenics um and how that that affects uh different families but elon yeah, I know no. you had a question i just want to throw that oh in. sorry Sorry, go ahead, Brian. No, uh, I Brian, you should answer that. Yeah. Or oh, no. Yeah. I mean, to me, again, that was just something that I stumbled upon that uh, Francis Galton, um, well, he's a math, he was a French mathematician 
And, you know, so much of algorithmic governance is about finding correlations, right? Find correlations between age, race, gender, and whatever behavior, whether criminal behavior or maybe some health outcome, right? While not often, and we know this with STEM, they're, they're, now they're starting to get hip to it, but they often don't look at social context, right? They'll look at these variables, age, race, gender, and then they'll look at some outcome. Who turns up a criminal? Who gets cancer? Who get, you know, who has how many kids, Right. But without looking at the social context in which those outcomes were produced. And when I'm so I'm looking and, and they find correlations between those variables. So, I, you know, I'm doing a little studying on, on correlations and I find the inventor or one of the inventors of the mathematical correlation in, invented the concept whilst working for essentially a criminal justice department um, to prove that certain ethnic groups were more criminogenic than others. And, you know, this is just one of these moments when I think reading historically, you're like, you can't make this stuff up. Right. Um, so, you know, that that was something that to even think of the idea, you know, mathematicians and statisticians, they use correlations. We use our whole society is built off um, or, or, or run in, in many ways via algorithms that are just finding correlations, but to find what were they originally invented for? Um, what Again, what you know, political uh, project were they originally uh, found for? And you, and you find some dark stuff. So, you know, it, it's not... And then you could see how it, as Khadija, like I think you're saying, as how that evolves and, and is reproduced over the centuries um, and in different places. Uh, so, yeah, to me, that was really... Um, that was just really eye-opening to see that fingerprinting by, is a biotech, uh, biometric technology, to see finding correlations between fingerprints and social outcomes, you know, is, is a political sort of practice. And seeing that it was for eugenics was, you know, I, it was like one of the sort of more eye-opening things. And that's when I was like, I got to sort of write this book more historically. Um uh, than focusing on the present. I apologize. The first chapter should be two chapters. It's way too long, but it was just because I was so like, I was just so like the history to me was so, um, uh, interesting and eye opening, and, and, it, and it helped me read the present, I think better. I, I think one of the things that, that I got a lot out of the book was you don't actually spend that much time kind of talking about the, the scary sci-fi technologies that we're all constantly always talking about. Um, you know, like facial recognition is a profoundly scary concept and the implications are profoundly scary, but you do a lot to make like databases scary, right? And like the concept of a database is so common and normalized. And yet you really show how like just the acts of collecting this data puts people's lives at risk. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, to me, the facial recognition, uh, of course, I'm against facial rec recognition software, but I don't know that how much more scary it is that when a police officer who's doing racial recognition, um, you, you know, so it, I don't, I, I don't know how radically different it is um, that it can, it, it reads us. And I mean, for the individual, of course, it can read us and track us and say, you were here at this time. Um one of the ironies we know with facial recognition software is they typically prototype it on fair-skinned people. So it doesn't do a good job of, of, of recognizing black people. It actually misrecognizes us a lot. It kind of reminds me of that Dave Chappelle joke where he says, you know, every now and then racism works out for us. Um, but the, but the database, to me, 
that is at least as scary. I'm not trying to say more or less, and I'm not trying to minimize how scary facial recognition is because it is. But the database to me is is more scary, and the reason, or as scary, and the reason why is you know I was reading, you know, in American studies stuff about, and I'm trying to read much more now about colonialism, um, and. You know, Lisa Lowe's a really great writer in in showing how registries and taxonomies have always been at the heart of Western colonialism, uh, always been uh, technologies of differentiating and registering and keeping tabs on and measuring the other. Um, and, you know, so, you know, all the way back to the 18th century, at least. So, for me, the fact that that sort of the registry, I see that, uh, you know, the, the registry, the database as, as this sort of um, technology with a long history. And what it, what it does is, you know, it labels people um, racially, um, essentializes them racially, which is another thing I have, you know, w- with some of the um, the Deleuzian and some of the algorithmic governance people who, who you know, use the individual. Uh, no, like these essentialized categories, black, white, they still, you know, they're built into the database. Like I, I've looked inside them, so to speak. Um, and then attaching those variables to things like criminality, to me, in, in many ways, and, and like you said, you know, the database seems like this innocuous thing, who, you know, it's just a, a, a sort of spreadsheet. Um, how, you know, scary can that be? But to me, that is sort of one of the ways that, you know, it manages data, but it's also used to manage human beings. Um, and it, it's, it's banality, I think, is something that merits uh, critical scrutiny. I think also one of the things that that you also make very apparent is the way that on one hand you have the database where the where the information is being collected and stored, distributed and communicated across, you know, multiple policing agencies. But then the way information is communicated back to the police and you describe extensively the the kinds of maps cops are always looking at. Um and I think I think it's interesting the ways we we often kind of failed to discuss that data visualization is political. And I mean, W.E. Du Bois on one side, but also just like the the wild number of ways that you can draw the same graph and come to different conclusions. And I think that when you do that kind of geospatially on a map, uh, you're able to communicate things about an area without saying maybe the racist part out loud and things like that, um, right? The zip codes being the, the kind of foremost example of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, because, you know, the way I see it is that map, again, it seems banal, it seems neutral, it seems, you know, value free. Um, but you could think of it discursively. Like one of the things I wanted to do in the book, I didn't do it, but, you know, I wanted to put like a, a, a today's a digital map of crime and you could put it, you know, right next to some, you know, horrendously racist poster, um, you know, from the 1800s. I think because it's social function. And again, I think if there's any sort of reoccurring theme for my book is is that, um, and the way I think about the digital is to is obviously the functionality of the technology and how it works and what data it's crunching is important. But I'm just I'm more interested in the social function, and that map serves the very same social function as the most overtly racist um, sort of visualization, you know, of of a black or brown person. Um, you know, it, it does the same work in many ways, and and. But I also do think with data visualization is an inter and data in general. The interesting thing is if you interpret it from a different framework, then it looks completely different. Because when I look at a police map, I don't see the behavior of the residents. I see the behavior of the police department. 
right? And look, they even gave me proof to make my argument. And that's exactly what happened with stop and frisk when I was in New York, right? It was the the um the data was they they were called U twenty U two five zero forms, I think, where every time a police stopped a resident, they had to put in their information into a form and then feed it into a database. Well, once we got access to the database, the great lot of great people at John Jay, like uh, Dolores Jones Brown, um, is, is she's really uh, one of the great scholars to first peek into those databases and you find things like it's over like well, I think it was like 88% of all the people who were stopped were black or Latinx. Um, and it's their data. But if you just switch around the sort of um, your, your viewpoint and rather than focus on the people who were stopped, but you focus on the people who are doing the stopping, then they've actually given you proof that is, that it's racist. And especially if you look at marijuana arrests, like I always tell my students, like you can't, the data and the visualizations of the data, which are just another articulation of, of you know, um, numbers, uh, are skewed because if if you look at marijuana arrests and you're finding like high 80s of all the people arrested are black or Latinx, um, and you look at the map and you think about well, do are the students at NYU or Columbia smoking weed, right? Or doing whatever other drug or underage drinking or sexual violence in dorm rooms, right? Those are, are not coming up on the map because nobody's going into their dorm rooms and observing them or recording them. So the data, you know, you, you almost take it with the grain of salt. And, you know, I think uh, you see now a lot of the, the scientists, the computer scientists, some of which who I've uh, interviewed, um, you know, who like to say, you know, they like to throw all these equations at us and try to talk in this fancy language. But all you have to do is say, contextualize how those data were generated. And then everything, you know, it looks a lot less scientific. Um, so, yeah, I think reading data, deconstructing it is important, but also interpreting it from a different perspective can can completely turn what they're saying on its head. It shows it's not scientifically driven. It's undisputably racially driven by the very same data. And, and, and that's, you know, the way, what I was trying to do with the book. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear you talk a bit more on how you see some of the data um, making populations or certain issues invisible. Um, and you're touching on that right now. Um, it brings me back to the idea of public health and mental health issues in prisons. It, also makes me think about something you discussed, which was situational awareness, this idea of decreasing a mental workload um, for officers when they're policing certain environments, right? Um, and you talk about this IT cre um, creating a system where an officer is specifically on guard in specific places at ease in others, and the way that that supplants any kind of uh, um, community engagement um, with the, for the officer with the community, right? So that that develops a different kind of contextual awareness. And so um, I'm hoping you could speak a bit more on that. Something else you mentioned is the um, the way that it's accelerating policing. And now I'm thinking of the example you brought up, which is Chicago PD. Um, once they got this data on uh, gang violence or gangs in a community, using that to ramp up their policing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this yeah, and those go together. I think so. Situational awareness it comes from um, like Marshall uh, uh, research. Um, uh, it comes from I believe the Air Force, but it definitely comes from the Armed Forces. Uh, and it was the idea that 
the majority of mistakes or a lot of the mistakes that humans make in, in a wartime situation um, are due to lack of um, requisite information or too much misinformation. And one of the things to, to fill in the void of that ignorance is by giving them, uh, you know, data, it could be spatial data, it could be positional data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and as a computer, I mean, if we go all the way back to, you know, World War II, a digital computer is invented um, in many ways as not only a supplement or an appendage, but in some cases a replacement of, of, of humans and, and human brain power. Um, so when you plug that into a police department, um, you know, one, you're saying, look at the screen and the screen will tell you the rec- the relevant information in the situation that you find yourself in. And just like you say, you know, the computer's telling you that, not the community. Um, and then the second thing I think is it reinforces, even if, if, if implicitly, this sort of militaristic undertone in policing, right? This idea that you are in a hostile environment, the idea that the dots on the maps are targets or are hostiles, right? And it, that's not, computers didn't create that mentality, but I think they reproduced that mentality um, for, for some officers. Uh, and then sort of, you know, the, uh, using that uh, as a justification or, or sort of building on top of the sort of militaristic viewpoint towards communities, um, you know, saying, well, we need more policies, we need more checkpoints, we need more cameras, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It all sort of uh, adds up to this fact that these communities are looked at like hostile enemy territories. Uh, and we are gearing up police departments and it might not be bigger guns. You know, that's another thing I want to sort of um, emphasize. It might not just be bigger guns. It could be a camera, right? It could be um, fiber optic cabling. It could be whatever. Um, but the idea is that you're, you're still, that's why I say that it's continuing the war on crime and the war on drugs. And, you know, we don't need politicians out there um, you know, Trump is sort of a, um, he's sort of messing it up for them because they were doing it without all of this sort of bombastic rhetoric. Uh, it was, you know, being done in a sort of very soft rhetoric of the IT company and, you know, public safety and smart this, like you said earlier, or smart that. Uh, but what it's doing, I think, is, is it's like a Trojan horse for for continuing um, the war on crime and the war on drugs. And then, interestingly enough, because we're talking about IT you know, I was also interested in how this has, you know, it physically changes the landscape. And and what I'm really trying to hint at is like, if we don't stop this, like these, these communities will look like the weaker population where you have to, uh, and in some cases, this is in America, like where you have to use an ID card to get into your public housing complex, right? Um, and they have to use it sometimes to leave public housing context, right? Where you go to a store, you won't be able to buy something because of whatever's in your file. Um, so, so yeah, I think like the situational awareness, it is, it's turning these, these communities slowly but steadily into like these radical others. Uh, and there's a lot of research on this, on post-communism, where the internal enemy becomes the threat, the, the public enemy number one, right? And I think a lot of us thought when 9-11 happened, there's a new enemy. Yeah, which was true. But also, I think the sort of the, the poor black and brown um, urbanites are still public enemies or being controlled in many ways or governed differently via these technologies that can be very invisible or insidious. 
Um, I want to be mindful of time, but before we go to our wrap-up ritual, I had a question about maybe your situational awareness, situational awareness in your immediate academic community, um, vis-a-vis Candyman. As um, so, ha- have you seen Candyman? No, no. I'll and so my friend, my friend Tao, um, organized like right, right at the beginning of the pandemic, this live tweeting of black movies on Thursdays. And so one of the last ones I participated in was a viewing of Candyman, which it came out in 92. And so my childhood Yeah, I saw the original one. Sorry. Yeah, no, my childhood memories was just like a horror movie, but rewatching it, I appreciated how like the protagonist is this white woman PhD student from like the semiotics department. And she wants to go like understand and study the residents of Cabrini Green and how they're using the myth of Candyman um, to cope with the hardships of urban poverty. And she's interviewing this little boy, no informed consent, no parent, nothing. And he's like talking about how Candyman castrated him in the bathroom and she's not paying him no mind. And long story short, like Candyman is real and he starts coming after her. And she's like, no, but my thesis, I have to keep (laughs) studying them because of my thesis. And, you know, ultimately things end really horrifically, you know, including but not limited to incarceration and um, other. I don't spoil it, though. Don't spoil it. Don't yeah, I'm not, gonna, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it, but I just, I was like, wow, this is the original, you know, now Get Out is our like political horror movie cathartic viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, when she just kept screaming about my thesis, it just made me think about um, one, how when people are so caught up in the lens and the tradition of ethnography and anthropology and studying the other, that they don't realize that the danger is real. Um, and that what's been happening to poor people, to black people, to indigenous people for centuries is be is is it has a differentiated impact but it's spreading to other aspects of society and it's coming to you too um but the other thing about the role of academia in this moment and you were just saying how bizarre it is to look on amazon and see black lives matter i was thinking how amazon's ringer put out a statement that they're in solidarity with black lives and um, there's all these institutions now that, they, you know, they want to set up committees and like listening sessions. And I'm just curious as we're wrapping it up, like what's what's your kind of take and experience about navigating this moment? I'm sure you have like yeah. all the people for whom you're their one black friend all up in your inbox mm-hmm. apologizing. I don't know. Maybe that's an assumption. <laughs> no, I'm just yes, curious yes, about how yes. you're navigating this. <laughs> <laughs> no, act, I'm really, uh, I'm happy you asked that. This is not a question I think I would have got. And, and I appreciate it um, because I really don't feel comfortable with the fact that my career benefits from stuff like George Floyd's murder. Uh, You know, this is, this is something, it sickens me to be honest with you. I mean, I go back and forth by saying, am I a race scholar? I don't want to do it because it feels like I'm commodifying it, you know, and I'm really uncomfortable with it. And sometimes, you know, I want to say like, I just want to write about computers, you know? And like, there was a time in grad school when I said I'm not writing about race because I'm not going to be forced to have to write about race. But what I've come to realize is this is what it means to be black. I don't have a choice. That's the point, right? So um, you know, and you know, you read um, uh, um, um, I'm blanking on his name, uh, uh, but right, he says the black artist doesn't have a choice. You know, can choose to be political or not. I've made my choice. Paul Robeson um, mm-hmm. said that, and. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't have a choice. So in terms of research, again, I feel bad because I know when George Floyd had, when I graduated in 2014, right after I deposited, Ferguson popped off. And 
I do believe that had some um, connection to me having got get, gotten a job, you know? And I do feel like George Floyd's murder has a connection to the visibility of my work. And it doesn't, you know, this is what I think I use the, 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 the framework of racial capitalism. And what I look at is sort of how there are incentives, um, you know, how economic incentives built into racist acts. Um, and, you know, the, the, only, the only way I can navigate as, a, as an academic recently is to really, again, I, I come from theory background, but is to really look at social movements and young people, not only, but especially young people in the street and listen to them more. Like, I, I, you know, we can read as many books as possible, but, you know, rather than me trying to impose my voice uh, and say, this is what, I mean, the author always does that to some extent, but is to really try to get um, more ideas from listening to other people, you know, outside of the academy, because in many ways, I think the academy has become a bit stale and the the publishing requirements, right, um, are, are, are such that, you know, we're just writing, 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 you know, trying to get tenure or whatever. But, um, you know, I think maybe post tenure, I have a little sort of more leeway to, to listen rather than talk and rather than write. Um, but it's a tough field to navigate. And then, like you said, only 2% of all professors in this country um, or black men and women only account for 2% of all professors, uh, of all black professors. I'm not saying this right. 2% of all professors in this country are black, male or female, right? That's nothing, you know? And I am going to see the candy man, you know, because of course a lot of solidarity will be with white feminists. And, but sometimes I'm like, yo, there's 13 times more of you than there of, of, of me, black male and black female, right? So they're not many of us, right? And then we're put in a competition with each other because it's a marketized institution. So, you know, it's a tough thing to navigate, but to know that that's my struggle against race, that's nothing compared to what George Floyd encountered. So, you know, it's just, you know, you push through and just try to um, try to be as, as useful as you possibly can. But I try to think of my academic work as or as a tool more than as as like an answer to anything. Um, uh, so that's the way I, I do it. In terms of the text messages, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't want to be rude, but I just, there's two, it, I know it's well-meaning, but yeah, I had to, <laughs> I had to leave a couple unread messages though. <laughs> but I appreciate, I mean, you know how it is. It's, it's, a, it's two ways. You appreciate the person's gesture. And I always think of intentions first, um, but it is, it does oh, add to Oh, you're nicer the... than me. <laughs> I know, I, I look at the Khadija comes back with the cash app. Oh, oh no! Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. That's not wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I appreciate you for keeping it real. I think it's complicated. I feel like you gotta write it. You gotta be a race scholar, maybe because you're black, but also because you can't understand all the surveillance stuff if you don't understand race. And maybe that's why we gotta look towards the Ruha Benjamins and the Simone Browns and the Carla Sheds and all of these people who are explicating, um, you know, the the intersection between these carceral continuums and the intersection of technology and techno science because you need race to understand what's going on. You can't mm-hmm. begin from like the one little sociology text cited at the Fast Star Conference. You know, you need that body of work to really understand it. So. Um, nah, I appreciate, and I think we're even thinking about this as a team on the podcast too, because at first this was a, 
was a COVID-19 podcast, both in the sense that its genesis was like, well, what are we going to do? We all stuck in our houses. And two, we were trying to figure out like, you know, what's the community think? How can we work through like all of our questions with the people that we love reading and try to make sense of what's happening? And then we had to address what was happening in the streets. We had to address George Floyd and we had the advantage of already incorporating critical race theory into our platform. But like you said, I don't want to you know, so, so quick to commodify the aesthetic. Like I can already see the black trans lives matter kitsch at, at the entrance to urban <laughs> outfitters coming down. Right. Yeah, like oh you can already see yeah. that. coming. No, you can see it. No, <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and oh. like it's complicated. That best description I think you said is complicated, but you just have to, you know, know that the world's complicated. Racism is complicated. So, you know, try to do what you can. Um, all right. And on that note, I'm gonna take the easy way out. Let's do our ritual share our reading recommendations. Cause um this is I just no, I really appreciate it. this is this is this is heavy. I mean that could be its own its own episode. We're gonna have to have you back. But um thank you. Is there anything actually else that you would like to say about your book um or any other work that you're working on before we go to that? No, no, uh nothing much. You know, now what I'm working on is where does technology come from, right? And how does race and colonialism uh uh, dictate that. So I'm reading about mineral mining in coal, in, in Congo, uh, you know, so trying to be more transnational um, is, and I think the, the, the Black Lives Matter protest, I hope like, um, you know, for black people, especially in this, you know, in this country, you know, I think one of the things that, that it's really opened us up to is, hey, like we could be more transnational, you know, you could build allies, right? There's, there's way more of the other on planet earth right, than there are of white supremacists. So, yeah, now I'm, I'm looking at sort of things transnationally. Where did the technology come from in the first place? Uh, and, and how is mostly, you know, Global South uh, uh, sort of get the short end of the stick when it comes to the production and distribution and the, the disposal of, of digital technology? Fire. That sounds like... It's hard, it's hard to say that's exciting because, you know, the, the, the reality is not exciting, but that's, it's exciting research. Um, and also, I wanted to mention when you were talking about the Uyghurs in China, uh, we think a lot about Kashmir as being one of the most mm. militarized places in the world. And um, they're also da- they're down for the internationalism and the solidarity, too. So that might be a good reference point. Um, oh, no, yeah, I appreciate it. But do you want to share, and it could be anything that you're listening to, reading, watching, that you want to recommend to our listeners? It could be on topic or off, um, just something you want to put in in their, in their view. No, yeah, I saw that, and I was hoping I'd have more time to think about it, because when I was looking at your <laughs> site, which I really like. Um, I don't know. I, re- I wrote the book to like a lot of synthwave and a lot of, I'm a 90s kid. Like a real '90s kid, you know that people say that, but I'm like really '90s. So like, like a lot of, uh, <laughs> you know, like a lot of like RZA instrumentals, um, you know, a lot of Bobby Digital stuff, but also um, right, the old El Producto Company Flow, a lot of those, anything that's sort of synthy, um, sort of cyberpunky. Like, um, I'm reading William Gibson right now, uh, um, his his bridge trilogy in in San Francisco. Um, so I, I just like I've taken. It's hard to quantify or pinpoint, but um, you know I I really I sort of joke. I say like like this, my research is what happens when someone you know grows up on Wu Tang and Apple Corporation. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's the way I like to look at it. Uh, but yeah, I like a lot of the, the sort of cyberpunk stuff when, when people are first starting to think about what computers were doing to us. Uh, and you see that a lot in, in a lot of hip hop actually back then, but and of course in a lot of literature and, and film. So 
I'm always sort of. First like of all, that. we must be the same age because I grew up on Wu Tang and Apple too. Um, but you, but you <laughs> got me working in these show notes. You got me working in these show notes. You were like, oh, I, you know, I don't really know. Let me label like five things. I'm like, all right, let me take these notes real quick. Um, for fire, fire. That's cool. You want to add anything else to your to your list right here? No, no, that's it. Oh, Cannibal Ox, I was listening to yesterday. So them too. All right, cool. Got that. Um, Elon. Mine is so much more boring. Like, <laughs> uh, damn. Uh, I came across a magazine that I've, an online magazine that I've found re- pretty interesting called uh, New Bloom Radical Perspectives on Taiwan and the Asia Pacific. Um, just, just like my, my interest in this came from, you know, seeing all the activism that was happening in, in Taiwan with the Sunrise Movement and then more recently in Hong Kong. Um, and you saw these like kind of interesting and, I don't know, discomforting takes where like you had in Hong Kong them saying like, not all of them, but like I definitely saw examples of the saying like, oh, uh, President Trump, like help us, save us. And I was like, oh, no, like, I like, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this alliance between like, you know, protesters in Hong Kong and Taiwan, uh, like an allyship with like the American right. And like, I didn't I didn't know what to make of that. Um, and so all of a sudden you have this alternative, which was presented, which is kind of like they have a good explainer on it on the Chow Collective and the left diasporic Chinese nationalism. But you had this alternative, which was like, no, the left should be supporting supporting China, right? Like that's the true kind of socialist alternative. And like, and I don't, I don't really like that um, because of exactly the kind of stuff we were talking about with the Uyghurs. Um, and so they, this magazine really articulates a perspective on kind of youth activism and the politics of Taiwan and Asia that I can agree with. Um, and I found very interesting. Uh, they're really good takes. Yeah, I'm on it now. I'm putting it, bookmarking it. Uh, yeah, so myself, I hmm, I have kind of overwhelmed myself. Um, I think consistently throughout these episodes have I been like, oh, I'm reading two books. I'm reading three books right now. Um, but I think what I've overwhelmed myself with is reading groups. Uh, I'm currently facilitating one uh, on with Angela Davis as our presence obsolete. And from that, I got a bunch of different recommendations from the people in the group, one of which is an article, um, Horton Spillers as Mama's Baby, Papa's Maybe. Um, and so that's one of my next reads. And besides the reading, um, I think generally quarantine, I don't know why, but I trained in traditional West African dance for a few years. And thinking about the influence of that um, traditional music in the hip hop rhythms and all of the rhythms that we understand today. Um, I, this quarantine has been an Afrobeats quarantine for me, for sure. Like 90% of the music I'm listening to, it's uh, techno, it is Wizkid, it is Burna Boy, it is straight up Afrobeats. So I think that's what I'm listening to. Um, cool, fire. Full disclosure, my kids are in a state of civil unrest in the other room, so hopefully I'll make it through this recommendation. Um, but I wanted to share, I, I've been rereading the anthology, the poetry anthology, Homies by Dennis Smith. Um, 
Danez is a non-binary, queer, HIV-positive um, poet from St. Paul, Minneapolis. But this book is so goddamn funny. I mean, I cried, I laughed, and I mean, just one thing about navigating racial spaces is that the he says the front title on the front cover is the title for white people. And then if you op- if you turn the cover, he has another cover that's for black people with a word we don't want everybody else to say. Um, but I just really appreciated that. And this book is so, I mean, you could just Google him too and like look him up um, and see some of the free poems that's out there. But it's just so, it just brought me so much joy. It just, get, it just gives me life and he keeps it so real or they keep it so real. Um, and with that, that's all. Uh, Brian Jefferson, thank you so much. Everybody, please go out and buy and purchase uh, Digitize and Punish. It's an incredible body of work. Please like us, subscribe us, review us, write to us. We at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's webeimagining at gmail.com. And that's it. <laughs>